Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Monday, November 27th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have bankruptcy as big business for Kirkland, federal defenders teaming up to argue before SCOTUS, SEC executive clawback rule means long nights ahead, and Adult Survivors Act deadline causes a flurry of lawsuits to be filed at once. Let's do our best to return to work and not eyeball the calendar for the end of the year and also read today's legal news. But first, a quick note here at the top of the show. Reviews and ratings go a long way towards surfacing our content on podcasting platforms. If you have a moment and wouldn't mind very much, would you tap over to your podcast player of choice and give us a star rating, a thumbs up or a heart or whatever other positive affirmation you can? It'd be much appreciated. Sorry for the interruption and let's get to it. This day in legal history, November 27th, 1815, marked a significant moment in the constitutional journey of Poland. Emperor Alexander I of Russia, in his capacity as King of Poland, signed a constitution for the Kingdom of Poland, a state reconstituted under Russian dominance. This event followed the Congress of Vienna's directive to provide a constitutional framework for Poland, leading to the unofficial naming of the state as Congress Poland. The Kingdom of Poland, established as one of the smallest Polish states in history, was significantly smaller than both the preceding Duchy of Warsaw and the earlier Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Constitution was unilaterally granted by the ruler without parliamentary vote, reflecting a top-down approach to governance. Prince Adam Sartoyski played a pivotal role in drafting this Constitution, although its final version bore the edits and influences of Emperor Alexander I and his advisors. Notably liberal for its time, the Constitution promised freedoms, including speech and religious tolerance, showcasing the influence of both Polish and Russian Enlightenment thought. However, in contrast to the Constitution of the Duchy of Warsaw, it favored the nobility and rolled back certain rights previously extended to Polish Jews and peasants. The Russian authorities never fully honored the Constitution's provisions. Its liberal yet vague articles were frequently manipulated, avoided, or outright violated. The promised parliament, scheduled to convene biennially, only met sporadically with sessions in 1818, 1820, 1826, and 1830, the latter two held secretly. The infrequent sessions and the government's conservative stance within them sparked liberal dissent among deputies. This growing dissatisfaction, fueled by the disregard for constitutional promises, eventually led to the November Uprising in 1830. During this tumultuous period, the Constitution underwent modifications, but following the uprising's failure, it was replaced by the Organic Statute of the Kingdom of Poland on February 26, 1832. This new statute, far more conservative and granted by Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, never saw actual implementation, marking the end of a brief but pivotal chapter in Poland's constitutional history. Kirkland & Ellis, a top-grossing law firm in big law, recently reported substantial earnings from retainer payments connected to the bankruptcies of Rite Aid Corp. and WeWork Inc., totaling $41.5 million. These payments come in addition to a $2.5 million retainer from another bankrupt client, Smile Direct Club Inc. Kirkland, recognized for its large number of non-equity partners, has recently inducted seven new partners from its restructuring practice, which gained prominence for representing several cryptocurrency companies in Chapter 11 cases. Kirkland's notable role in high-profile bankruptcies involves complex legal and financial navigations, though the firm did not comment on its specific work for WeWork and Rite Aid. In WeWork's case, Kirkland received over $22 million in retainers and is involved in the company's bankruptcy process to address lease issues, with billing rates for its lawyers ranging from $685 to $2,245 per hour. Other law firms, including Munger, Tolls & Olison, Cole Schatz, and Canada's Goodmans, are also advising WeWork with varying retainer fees and hourly rates. For Rite Aid's bankruptcy, Kirkland disclosed receiving about $19.5 million in retainers, with similar hourly rates as in the WeWork case. 
Rite Aid has engaged additional legal counsel, including Cole Schatz, Wilson Sonsi, Goodrich and Rosati, and Cobri and Kim, each receiving significant retainer payments and billing at various hourly rates. The company, under new legal leadership, faces a deadline to emerge from Chapter 11 by March 1st. The Federal Defender Supreme Court Resource and Assistance Panel, or DSCRAP, has become instrumental in aiding federal public defenders in preparing for arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. Andrew Adler, a federal defender, exemplifies this effort, making his third appearance at the Supreme Court a rare achievement for federal public defenders who usually argue only once before the justices. This trend is notable as federal defenders across the nation have argued at least one case each term since 2000, according to Adler. The Supreme Court's limited case docket intensifies the competition for arguing cases, with elite law firms often pressuring defenders to hand over their cases to more experienced advocates. To counter this, DSCRAP supports first-time advocates by partnering them with experienced federal defenders. This initiative is a response to criticism from Supreme Court justices regarding the quality of representation provided by criminal defense attorneys. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, for instance, criticized attorneys unwilling to pass their cases to seasoned Supreme Court advocates, labeling it as malpractice. This sentiment reflects the dominance of a small, elite group of big firm lawyers in the Supreme Court bar. However, federal defenders often possess deep subject matter expertise and extensive experience in federal appellate courts. Andrew Adler's preparation for his current case, which is Jackson v. United States, demonstrates the collaborative efforts to ensure successful arguments. DSCRAP assisted in brainstorming strategies and planned moot courts for Adler, while he also worked with Supreme Court veteran Jeff Fisher for brief preparation. Michael Caruso, the federal public defender for the Southern District of Florida, emphasizes the value of partnering with experienced high court veterans for insights and argument preparation. This collaborative approach aims to balance the often David and Goliath-like scenario federal defenders face when opposing top government lawyers like the U.S. Solicitor General's office attorneys. The partnerships and support systems developed within the federal defender community illustrate their commitment to providing quality representation in the nation's highest court, countering the perceived home court advantage of repeat players. The new Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, rules for clawing back executive pay are causing significant challenges and discussions in corporate America. These rules, mandated by the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 but only issued in 2022, require companies to adopt policies to recoup bonuses from executives in cases of accounting errors. Failing to implement these policies by the December 1st deadline risks expulsion from stock exchanges like NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. The complexity of these rules is considerable, as demonstrated by a legal team at Latham & Watkins LLP who spent over five hours on a call just to create a flowchart for clients. The SEC's directive primarily targets bonuses linked to earnings metrics that are later found to be miscalculated. This not only includes major financial restatements known as big R corrections, but also smaller, often unnoticed adjustments labeled little r revisions. These little r revisions, typically slipped into regular financial filings, are more common than the more conspicuous big R restatements. However, the SEC's new rules do not cover out-of-period adjustments, which are minor fixes to immaterial errors in past financial statements. Despite this, companies must now indicate on their annual financial statements if any past correction, including an out-of-period adjustment, was made. What this all means is that companies must now discern between little r revisions and out-of-period adjustments more carefully, a task that has gained new significance under these rules. As Keith Halverstam of Latham & Watkins LLP noted to Bloomberg Law, this represents a new reality where both executive and accounting teams need to be acutely aware of these distinctions. Beyond accounting complexities, the SEC rules also raise questions about their applicability to overseas companies listed on U.S. exchanges, especially in countries where clawing back pay is prohibited. Additionally, the rules apply to the pre-tax amount of wrongly awarded compensation, posing challenges for long-term incentive programs tied to company stock performance. 
as companies navigate these new regulations, the focus will also shift to how these policies are implemented in practice, leading to further questions and potential issues, as noted by Veronica Whistle of Davis, Polk, and Wardwell. This situation indicates a significant shift in executive compensation and corporate governance, requiring meticulous compliance and strategic planning. This final entry contains oblique references to sexual assault. If that isn't something you want to hear right now, we get it, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. In recent days, New York has seen a surge in lawsuits filed against notable individuals under the Adult Survivors Act, or ASA. This act, passed in May of 2022, was a critical amendment to state law allowing alleged victims of sexual offenses where the statute of limitations had lapsed to file civil suits within a one-year period. This look-back window began on November 24, 2022, and was set to close on November 24, 2023, creating a sense of urgency for filings. The ASA was designed to address the delayed effects of trauma often experienced by survivors of sexual assault, recognizing that many are unable to come forward immediately after the incident. This legislation mirrors the earlier Child Victims Act of 2019, providing a similar opportunity for adults. As the deadline approached, there was a notable increase in high-profile lawsuits. Figures like Sean Combs, New York Mayor Eric Adams, and former President Donald Trump were among those sued under the ASA. For example, Trump was ordered to pay $5 million in damages to writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation and battery related to an incident alleged to have occurred in 1996. This wave of lawsuits highlights a crucial aspect of the ASA, its capacity to empower survivors of historical sexual abuse to seek justice regardless of the elapsed time. While the law initially saw relatively few filings, the rush near the deadline indicates a significant response from survivors seizing this opportunity. Overall, the ASA has facilitated over 2,500 legal actions, underscoring the widespread impact of sexual assault and the need for legal avenues to address long-standing grievances. The law's expiry has prompted a final push for justice, bringing numerous cases into the public eye and spotlighting the pervasive issue of sexual misconduct across various sectors. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics we touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, you can find us on Mastodon on the ESQ.social instance. I'm at Andrew and my co-host Gina is at Gina. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it certainly is not legal advice. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we'd sure appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in the story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever you get your finely crafted podcasts. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email newsletter form. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember to toss or hastily consume your Thanksgiving leftovers. They'll be shot by tomorrow. <laughs>